Welcome to the Semi-Interesting Podcast, where we explore some of the unique legal issues in the global semiconductor industry. My name is Nathaniel Lusak. I'm an IP attorney at the law firm of Hodgson Russ and one of your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Morris. I'm an IP attorney and director of intellectual property and products at Pure Storage in Mountain View, California, and I am one of your hosts. Thanks for joining us today as we talk about building a better in-house legal team. This is a bit of a shameless plug since there are three attorneys on today's podcast, but your legal team is essential. It's a cost center, but it's an essential cost Yet I fully admit that three years of law school doesn't necessarily prepare anyone to work with all the stakeholders at a company. The world of finance or the world of R&D can look at legal as just the human embodiment of the word no. That's obviously not what we want as attorneys, but what do we do? Today, we'll discuss practical suggestions to bridge the gap between legal and the other business units with our guest, Sean Blixeth from Panasonic. Sean, welcome. To kick things off, if you wouldn't mind, could you give a quick introduction? Thank you so much. And Nathaniel, it's so good to see you again after so many years, having graduated from the same law school. And Elizabeth, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm managing senior counsel at Panasonic. I do work on many R&D projects across the organization, and it can range from R&D where where they're just trying to figure out what's cool and what's new all the way to an R&D project that has applications in the automotive industry. Panasonic has a big presence in the automotive industry. And so I'll bring teams together, legal teams, and we'll support certain projects across the company and I love my teams and I love the people I manage and it's I'm just very happy to be here today and hopefully make it a semi-interesting podcast. (laughs) That is the goal. You gave a quick introduction to some of the industries that you're in, but what does the R&D workforce look like at Panasonic? Where is everybody located? How far uh, how far apart is everyone? Where are they spread out in? That's a really difficult question to answer. The, the main R&D company that I support is their main offices are in Mountain View, California. They also have labs in Boston and Hollywood. Now, I also support teams that are in Denver, San Diego, and Newark, New Jersey, the the headquarters. So across the United States, we're spread out. And then, of course, these teams work with other members across Panasonic and the EU and Japan, sometimes in, in other Asian countries. So it just it depends on the project and you know where we need the talent. So Sean, R and D is a broad term. There's R&D, which is just for the the fun of research. There's R&D that's associated with a particular project. There's R&D, which is to improve an existing product. Do you get to work with all of them? Do you focus on one? I mean, what kind of R&D are you working? I advise different types of R&D groups. And by different types, I mean, I advise the R&D group that has different laboratories and are just trying to find the coolest thing or the newest thing in a certain industry. One part of the R&D group is they're just focusing on new technology in certain industries, but without any connection to a business. 
And then if they have something that's cool, then they propose it to a business to see if they can get further funding. And then there are other incubator R&D groups that has business management in it. These are projects where they know they're going to build it into a business. Those, those types of groups are much different. And by different, I mean that there's clear management processes that are in place at the incubator where they're saying, okay, we're going to evaluate a business opportunity through a decision process. And I am a part of that team and they bring me in to vote on that particular decision. And it's excellent management. It's a it's a whole, I'm going to say it's like a method for evaluating opportunities and then getting feedback from all the stakeholders who are in that meeting. And then you vote as to whether or not it's a go, no go, or redirect. And it's been really successful as a, an in-house or a, a, a corporate incubator process. Sean, it's really uh, great to say that. You've got a team in, in Mountain View. Um, that's where my headquarters were. We recently moved to Santa Clara. A uh, l- little quick anecdote from me. I remember when I was in private practice, a story I heard from a senior associate when I was very junior was that she was going to go to an invention disclosure meeting and she put on her interview suit and came to work and the partner would not let her attend that meeting because she would scare the engineers. And she had to go home and go put on, you know, jeans and a t-shirt to be, you know, in line with the with the Silicon Valley attitude. So speaking, you know, people all across America, let alone all across the world, is there a relationship or communication style that you have found particularly useful to bridge the gap, especially between legal, where maybe we are more happy in our suits sometimes and the researchers around the world. Definitely no suits. Don't don't wear a suit to go meet with the engineers. I would say try as much as possible to not wear a suit. You, You have to know that when you start working with a new team of engineers and if they haven't worked with legal counsel before, they don't want you there. And so you have to you know, swallow your pride and know that they are going to actively avoid you. So it's imperative on counsel to that break through that first obstacle to success, collaboration, by being approachable, showing that you have interest in the technology that they're developing, using humor, acknowledging that it's it's weird for them to be talking with counsel. You, you have to listen more than talk and know that they don't want to hear you speak. And really just, it takes time to break that down. But I, I've had a lot of times when an engineer will say, I've never worked with counsel before. This is so intimidating. And then by the end of the first meeting, they'll say, oh, that isn't what I expected at all. I thought you were going to be some stuffy lawyer who's going to tell me that I can't do things. I'm like, nope, that's not my job. I would not be doing my job if I was just here reciting corporate rules and regulations and and laws telling you what you can't do. Is that a factor of just having the right people? I know you and I have chatted previously and you've mentioned that teamwork can be the key in order to building these kind of relationships or building the right group of attorneys. How exactly do you set up the legal team to facilitate success with R&D, for example? Yes. The attorney who's 
has the relationship with the project manager has to be that type of collaborative, approachable, knowledgeable attorney who can keep that relationship healthy and keep the lines of communication open, hopefully as early in the development project as possible. And then also I'd say that lead attorney on the project, a big part of the job is coordinating with other members of the legal department or legal team, whether it's outside counsel or in-house counsel. So the, the role of that lead attorney is to be a translator of sorts between the, the legal team and the engineering team. And so that relationship between the project manager and the lead legal manager for a project is key. I set up teams per project, but it's a lot of it's the same individuals, but it's going to depend in the beginning on the type of technology, the jurisdiction, what the business goals are for this development. You know, more often than not, it's the same privacy attorneys. It's the same patent prosecution attorneys that I'm going to use it when the time is right. You know, after we do the invention disclosure and do our search and figure out whether or not it's something that we should patent or keeps the trade secret, so on and so forth. I put that team together and if I think it's appropriate, I'll bring one of the members of the team in and we'll have discussions with the engineering team at large. But usually the project manager is having those discussions with my team. I don't think I've worked with many attorneys who are that type who would just kind of say, no, absolutely not. You can't do this, but there are those types. When you have a team, a, a good team, it's like you need to do everything possible to keep that team together for as long as possible because good teams are really hard to find. Good team members are hard to find. So you want to keep those people, hold on to them as long as possible. You know, Sean, one thing I've found um, working with outside counsel is that sometimes you get outside counsel that develop a pretty strong relationship with particular inventors, for instance, and then I'll have inventors that specifically ask for people, right? Like, hey, can I work with that attorney again? They were so cool. Um, and, you know, in my practice anyways, I've found that often it works out because that outside counsel person has developed a particular expertise in that area. And that's the, you know, area that the that they worked with that engineer or that mentor on before. Um, have you found similar things where, where people kind of develop their own little space? Yeah, I encourage that. I I don't need to be the sort of conduit to outside counsel all the time. But I'll say that I need to monitor that because of budget. There have been times when outside counsel has contacted certain inventors, engineers, and they've had an hour-long conversation or longer and then the bill comes in and the project manager says hey wait hold on a second why are we getting billed for this so you have to work within the budget too another thing i've seen uh sometimes is we have um we have an eastern european group and we have an india group they really like different styles of interaction um i have a, a technical advisor who's actually i would say quite grumpy right and the eastern europeans really like eat that up you know they they really enjoy kind of being tested you know like prove to me that this is a good invention kind of thing right the india folks need to be more encouraged typically and they, they don't have as positive a reaction to that style of of interaction have you noticed that your strategy changes as you cross geographies. You know, for instance, if you're working with the R&D teams that are in the U.S. versus Japan or elsewhere. Of course, yes. We have 
engineers in Poland. Actually, we we had a group that was in Ukraine and we had to relocate them to Poland, but the war broke out. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. There are cultural differences that you need to be sensitive to. You need to study that. You need to be able to understand that so that you can have the best communication, uh, motivation, and results for the team you're working with. So in, in Japan, you need to know intricacies like not any one person is going to make a decision. And in Spain, we, we have teams in Spain and there are certain cultural differences there. They really, it's more along the lines of what you were talking about with India, where they really have a need to save face and show that they're winning or in charge. Now, this is a gross you know, stereotype and generalization, but you just need to know how to communicate with these teams. And I also communicate with our services providers who maybe aren't doing as good of a job. And my team comes to me, for instance, and says, this group in Germany is not performing according to their contract. And I have to think, okay, does it make sense for me to threaten them? Probably not. But what can I say about their breach of contract that will get them to come back to the table? How can I communicate that? So, I mean, every single group, you need to study it and learn the communication style, understand the cultural motivations, what means the most to these people who are part of the team. So yeah, absolutely. I deal with that all the time. Yeah, this is really kind of fascinating. I just had another anecdote recently or was working with somebody from India and they were doing what I call anyways, the India head bob, um, which looks a whole lot like shaking your head no, but it means yes. And um, I could tell the Indian employee was smiling and shaking his head no, right? And um, I could tell that it was confusing the presenter, you know, <laughs> and I actually like slapped him like on the side and I was like, that no shake, that's a yes, you're all good, you know, and he was like, oh, thank you so much. Like, I didn't know that. And I was, you know, he was tripping over himself. Yes. I deal with this a lot in communications with Japanese teams. You know, I, I worked in Japan. I studied in Japan for an extended period. And so I understand that. And that serves me well in my current role at Panasonic. And there can be many times, I, I've seen this many, many times, where the team over here will come away from a meeting and think, oh, we have consensus. And it's more that with the Japanese teams, meetings are not to make decisions. They're to gather information. And I see that over and over again becoming a point of misunderstanding. You know, I have to tell them, no, we don't have the green light yet wait for approval before we go forward with this because that affirming posture that they had and the, the seemingly agreeing to your what you're proposing is not agreement it's not the final agreement so wait and that can be frustrating to teams over here who just want to go into a meeting make a decision and then move on do you find that you're almost an ambassador for legal when you're for example if you if you are the first face that someone in Japan, sees from U.S. legal. How, how do you approach that situation? Whereas what you do with one of your local teams in the U.S. I work with legal teams in Japan and engineers in Japan and business people in Japan. Yes, absolutely. If you're a legal leader, you are the ambassador for the world of the United States, which is very litigious, and they're not used to that, and so they may think, well, "What is the big deal? Why are we?" 
so concerned about this. We can enter into a relationship with a one-page memo, and we have to tell them, no, we, we need to get through and think about in advance all the issues that might arise in this relationship and then record that. So yes, I mean, you, you, you are an ambassador to the world of law in North America. Since you are, and this doesn't necessarily have to be with teams around in a particular country, but have you found an effective way to insert the legal team into a product team or into an R&D team that minimizes some of the bumpiness that sometimes can happen when you're when you're joining? Is it just optimizing it for the right personalities to meet with the group? Is it someone that has a particular cultural affinity? What What do you find works best? That's a great question, and I have told my direct reports often that they need to study project management, that they need as much education on project management as they get because R&D teams are doing project management all the time, and you, you need to know, at least as the lead attorney, what their project management method is and how they're going about it so that you can insert legal review and comments into their waterfall approach or their Kanban or their ways of going about project management. So it's incumbent on the lead attorney to, I don't want to say force, but insist on getting legal into the project management process. Otherwise, these teams are going to come to you too late and they're going to blame you for delays and they're going to say you are the department of no and and you get into well you should have come to me earlier well you knew about this you can tell this is from experience the lead attorney needs to have a relationship with the overall business manager or the group manager to notify the attorney who's assigned to that business or you know whoever it is to give notice when there are new projects and or new initiatives that are coming out. And so it's a it's an iterative process. You're going to know more if you're in the meetings, the management meetings, you're going to know when these new projects are coming up. You're going to say, hey, introduce me to the project manager. You're going to inspire confidence in management at that particular organization and assure the project manager that you're not there to stop them, that it is in their best interest to involve legal in the beginning. That if they don't, it's going to cause major problems right before they want to do whatever it is that they want to do, right? Whether it's launch the technology into the marketplace or present it to someone in Japan or at a conference or whatever it is. So then when they hear that, like, oh, it might cause delays later. Okay, we'll invite you to our biweekly meeting and you go in there and you do more. Like I said before, you do more listening than talking and build that relationship. Have you found any ways to give the teams something good where they realize it's great to have you in the meeting because you uh, can provide some sort of benefit, you know, that isn't just like, hey, we solved this problem before it, you know, stopped your product from release, but some more like, oh, you know, it was so great that we had legal because they could um, help us find something quicker. Or is there anything you found that's a good hint or trick that way? Yeah, if it's a project that is going through a sort of stage gate process for evaluation of whether or not to commercialize the technology, you can definitely give pointers on how they might go about development and then building the 
business around licensing that technology or maybe it's a subscription to a service or something so that you're there and you're showing them that you want to help them get a return off of this development. I'll also send by email or I'll present in meetings new developments that are legal and related to their technology that would be interesting to them and talk to them in, for instance, layman's terms about an interesting case that could be a warning for them to not go about a certain way or they have their engineers going out and searching patents and you say, don't do that because of the willful infringement problem. And here's a case that is on that very subject and it costs them millions of dollars. So it's sometimes you do have to go and say, hey, this is a warning. Another thing that I like to do is I like to send them just updates about technology, nothing legal related at all. Say, hey, I thought this was cool. Did you look into this? There have been many times when I found news about cutting edge technology or I've found a company that's doing some cool thing in California or wherever. And I say, have you contacted these guys? They seem like they can solve this problem that we were talking about the other day. You know, or maybe you know somebody at that company, right? And you can facilitate that interaction. That's where you're really adding value. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. You know, if they could get access to something they didn't otherwise have access to or, uh, you know, the research that you found that's relevant to them. So, you know, just recognizing that uh, it's a constant struggle. Have you found a way to prepare your teams, you know, that report to you or your R&D teams and your engineering teams either side to help them work together more effectively, to help the product team and the R&D team work with legal or to help legal work with the product or R&D teams? Have you found things that you can do to help people prepare? Well, it's really about breaking down their fears and telling them in advance that you're going to like working with this particular attorney because... She has a background in electrical engineering or she has experience at Google or whatever. I definitely, I, I, I talk my team members up before I introduce them to the R&D team and tell them, you know, I wouldn't put anybody else on this except for this person. She's great. You're going to love working with her. And then I, if it's a junior attorney, I coach them on how to work with engineers. Maybe it's a, somebody who's come in from a law firm and they're not used to working in-house for engineers and then I coach them on you really you need to listen and swallow your pride there a lot of times the engineers are going to think that they don't need you and engineers are smart so they'll go and they'll look up the law and try to get a quick snapshot of what you're talking about and, and then question you about whether or not you're really interpreting the law in the right way you need to be able to to deal with that. I've said time and again to engineers, I said, I'm so, so glad to work with uh, such a smart business partner as you. And I love that you challenge me on this so that I can crystallize my thinking. And so let me tell you why your interpretation is wrong. And then they appreciate that. Some engineers do. Some engineers just don't want to have anything to do with you. But I'm thinking about the the highest performing engineers who also have a business sense, sometimes they will not take your first advice at face value. They'll go and look it up. I can't, I'm thinking of a particular person right now who does that. And in the beginning, many years ago, I really didn't like that because I wanted 
this person to say, oh, okay, thanks, Sean. All right. So I need to go in this direction. You got it. But then after a while, I thought, he's challenging me and that's good because then I am sure about what I'm saying. And then I build confidence in him about my advice. So he doesn't question me so often going forward. And he knows that when I say you can't do something, I mean it because I always try to find a way to get to yes. Yeah, I feel like it really depends on the personality of, you know, whoever you're working with. You know, I feel like a lot of people I work with are just pretty agreeable, like in general, right? But then uh, there are some, you know, people that I've just really enjoyed working with that are just inherently happier, like being argumentative, right? That that sort of, you know, gets the blood flowing and it's just, he doesn't want me to agree with him, right? He wants me to fight with him because that's where you get to the real answer. Yes, absolutely. It, you said it so perfectly. That's where my mind was going with it. I, I think that's that's a great way to put it, that these sorts of individuals see that debate as really getting to the truth. Even though you might wind up in the same place as where you were when you first gave the advice, they want that conflict. I deal with a lot of engineers like that, actually, engineering managers. They they enjoy it. And I've I've learned to like it too, actually. I'm weird. So I have hack days with my team and with my legal team and my R&D team where the sole purpose is to in advance think about what's not working and then it's an outlet to voice that and then debate about whatever is going on they don't like the legal advice or they saw something different come bring it to the table and i'll do this in person or virtually and i think that it's really healthy for finding the answer and it's also it gives people job satisfaction I actually love that. I've never, I mean, I feel like you hear about engineering hackathons all the time, right? And oh, we're going to have these problems and we're going to try to like solve it, you know, within three days or a week or whatever. But the idea of sort of a, a legal hackathon, right? Like let's bring these issues forward and, and just spend some time throwing a, you know, operations, throwing, right? Mm-hmm. Workflow, what's not working. So you can tell that I've been working with R&D teams because I take those concepts and I bring them into legal teams. God, you. You mentioned at the very beginning that we went to law school together. And since we have been out for a couple of years, I'm thinking back to when I first started in-house in my mid-20s. And I was just surrounded by PowerPoint slides thinking I didn't realize I'd have to make so many PowerPoint slides as an attorney. Since you've had this position, since you've built all these teams, is there anything you could give to a junior attorney as advice as they're entering the world of color-coded spreadsheets what should they do as an in-house attorney that law school failed to teach? Embrace it. Learn. Use it as a communication tool. But don't make eye charts. We get slides from Japan during presentations. I don't know. It's a Japanese cultural thing. They try to fit as many words into one slide as possible. I almost, I think what it might be a contest that they have over there to see which person can fit as many words as possible into one slide. PowerPoint is just a communication tool. You can use other, there are other platforms, but it's supposed to help you quickly give an image, a snapshot of what you're trying to say. It should enhance what you're saying, not be the thing that you're saying. And if it doesn't enhance what you're saying, then don't do it. Sage advice. Sometimes I just use, I I have to use PowerPoint because I'm a 
15 minute segment in a day long all hands meeting and they need me to put PowerPoints in. And sometimes I'll just use pictures with a few words and say, okay, if I can find a picture that summarizes what I'm saying, I'm going to put that picture in there. But I don't want them reading my slide. Use charts. Find a way to use charts. Seriously, they will pay attention. You have to make sure that, you know, the charts are <laughs> consistent from slide to slide. <laughs> you don't want to raising their hand in the middle of your presentation and saying, uh, on the x-axis, it says 100, but that actually should be something. Yeah, you don't want that. And on that note, I just wanted to say thank you for branching out from your visual world of PowerPoint slides and charts and joining us in the purely audio world of podcasting today to talk about optimization and embracing the tools that the R&D folks are already doing and just adapting it for legal, not only to blend in, but also to actually improve your team. Yeah, of course. I, I could talk about this stuff all day. It's great to have you. You really uh, gave me some good things to think about and take back. And I'm sure the same is true for our listeners. So, so glad to have you here today. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Semi-Interesting Podcast. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, including YouTube. And if you enjoyed the episode, we always appreciate five-star reviews. While we talked about legal issues, none of the information shared during this podcast is intended to be legal advice. If you have any questions about information we cover or ideas for a future episode, feel free to contact me or the other attorneys at Hodgson Russ. You can find contact information at www.hodgsonruss.com.